Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 245 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. And I'm Ruben Lerner. And this week, we have a special guest, Bob Zeidman. Did I pronounce that right? Zeidman? Zeidman? Yes, Zeidman. Very good. Thank you. Okay. Good. Sure. Uh, So, Bob, welcome. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So uh, thanks, Reuben. Thanks, Phil. It's nice to meet you guys. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Uh, let's see about myself. So I, uh, I, have de- I started out with, uh, I got degrees in physics and electrical engineering. I actually wanted to be uh, at some point a physicist and a mathematician, at one point maybe a doctor. But I found I was really good at electrical engineering. And uh, so I got a degree in that. I either dropped out or... Uh, was kicked out of the PhD program at Stanford. It really depends on your perspective. And that was about 35 years ago and decided that I would take a year off and figure out what I was going to do with my life. So I went into industry, uh, started working for, I think I had worked for four companies in five years. One was a startup that lasted all of four months. Uh, one was a company whose division closed. Uh, two other companies didn't work out. I basically didn't like the corporate structure very much. I didn't like being on the bottom. So I decided I I was actually going to get out of engineering. I was going to write the great American novel, but I need some money. I found that consultants got paid a lot of money. So I'd become a consultant. So I printed up some business cards. It says consult said consultant on them. I actually think this is really important. It sounds kind of trivial, but I found that when I handed people a business card that said consultant, people automatically assumed I was smart and knew what I was doing. And uh, they started giving me jobs and paying me a lot of money for them. Uh, So I said, wow, this is great. I suddenly like engineering again. And (laughs) I've really been doing that ever since. I designed hardware and software for about, uh, I don't know, 20, 25 years, I guess. And I guess about 20 years. And then for the last 15 or so, I got into intellectual property litigation consulting where I tear devices apart, determine who's copying what from whom, whether it's software or hardware or who's infringing whose patents. And then I typically testify about it in court. And that business has been very successful and expanding. And I'm hiring other consultants to work for me. And I've also developed a series of tools that uh, make the job easier that I license out to people. Are you looking to expand your skills in mobile development? Have an idea for the next Angry Birds app? Then you need to check out iOS Remote Conf, produced by the same team that brings you your favorite devchat.tv podcasts like Ruby Rogues and iFreaks. Join us for two days of jam-packed fun and learning streamed to you live May 17th and 18th. Go check it out at iosremoteconf.com. So let me, let me ask you a little bit about that, because that sounds like an area that um, people don't know about so much. I have a tiny bit of experience doing that in that I spoke to two companies over the course of like two years. Each of them, like one of them, I talked to their lawyers for a little while and they paid me a small amount of money. Um, it would have been more, except they found out that I agreed with the other side of the case. Um, yeah. And the other, <laughs> they asked me a few questions, then I realized where they were going with it. And by that time it was too late. Um, and the other company basically invited me in and, um, then like, I, we go much further than that. I can't remember exactly why, but like, it's definitely one of these things that people do, but I guess, I guess my big question is 
let's say you're interested in that sort of thing. Let's say so you know the, the litigation consulting is of interest to you. You have uh, good. Well, I guess let me start off with what do you need to know in order to do that, and then what do you need to do in order to find clients who are interested in it. So, so those are really good questions, and this may sound a little bit uh, self-promoting, but. Um, but it's the truth. The thing is, it's really hard to get into the industry unless you know someone who is willing to vouch for you and you've got to be in the right place at the right time. And, and I just happened to be. So I'll, I'll tell you quickly, when I got started, I was actually starting a company over the years. I've started several companies and I was starting. I think it was maybe the one of the very early one of the first ones. And I talked to a Stanford professor I, I knew. He actually was the founder of the company I worked at for four months before it folded. And I went to him and I said, do you want to in, invest in my company? And he said, not really, but I'm going to testify in this trade secret case. And I need someone to do the actual work, the research, tear things apart, do the analysis. And then I'm teach me and, about what you find. And I'm going to testify. And when he told me what it paid, I said, I'm in. Um, so, but, but it was kind of fortunate. So what I do now is I actually, uh, I mentioned, I have a company that sells tools, uh, for doing, helping with some of this analysis, software tools. And if you go to that site, site it's called safe corporation. I offer training to people to use the tools, but it's really training, not just in the tools, but also in how to write an expert report, how to testify in court, what's the difference in a patent, a trade secret, a copyright. And then I personally typically only hire contractors myself because I contract out a lot of my work now. I only hire contractors who have been through the training program because I know that they have an understanding. So going through that training, I th and we also, my company promotes people who've gone through the training, promotes them as independent contractors. So what I've been doing is I've been finding people who are just really talented, suggesting they take the training. And if they do well in the training, I hire them out. And we both, uh, you know, it works out well for everybody. But getting in it without that kind of thing, even taking the training is no guarantee. But getting into this, people have asked me, how do you get in? And really, I just happen to ask, the right person at the right time. And once you do a good job, hopefully they talk to other attorneys and they recommend you and they say, this guy did a great job. Um, other than that, it's, it's really hard. You can do what every consultant should be doing, which is writing articles. I found writing articles is really good for getting your name out and showing your expertise, uh, but, but there's no guarantees. You know, Reuven, I asked <coughs> Philip Greenspun that same question and he said, that he said, here's exactly what he said. I'm looking at the email. It said, lawyers would Google around, find my textbooks and other web writing. So he's uh, essentially saying what Bob's saying, right place, right time. <laughs> yeah. When did you talk about the Greenspun? <laughs> All right, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> Boy, yeah. small world. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an odd situation because even with the Googling, so Googling helps if you've got a lot of stuff out there and I've got a textbook and I write a lot of articles, but initially it was all word of mouth and it's hard to control. And if you call up lawyers, you know, 90% of lawyers don't handle IP cases or maybe even a, probably a larger percentage don't handle IP cases. And the ones that do, 
only really want to talk to you if they're currently starting an IP case. If they're in the middle of one or they're ending one or they're in between one, they really don't want to have, they don't have time to talk to you. I guess that makes sense. That even further narrows the aperture that you can get through. Yeah. So, you know, it's unlike working on a engineering project where every company's got some engineering projects going on. So you just, you could randomly talk to people and it's likely they need somebody, but it's just not true with intellectual property litigation. So Bob, what you said, if you do a good job, like what, uh, can you kind of add one layer of detail about what that looks like? Oh, doing a good job in an IP litigation. Yeah. Well, that there's a lot of things I could go into, but one thing you mentioned that I think is important Everybody who works for me, I emphasize, well, two things. The first thing is we always give an honest answer to our client. And sometimes it's not what our client wants to hear. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think every, every person working in this field has that same philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I insist on it. And then the other thing I, I tell people working for me, the attitude that I have is that somebody's career is at stake or a company's future is at stake. And so, uh, you know, you don't want to cut corners. Sometimes we're budget limited, for example. And there's two ways, there's a few ways of handling that. If we're budget limited, we have to tell the client, look, we'd like to do A, B, and C, but we feel confident that if we do A and C, we'll get reasonable results. But you can't do like a little bit of A, a little bit of B, and a little bit of C and not quite sure if your results are correct. In other words, whatever you do, you have to do to completion. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's so much at stake, you don't want to say, and you don't want to be on a, a trial either. This is the worst case for yourself. But you get in trial and they say, well, how do you know that uh, this person is guilty of stealing code? And you say, well, I'm pretty sure, but I didn't really get all the way Process. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Uh, so, I mean, what, yeah. can I be nosy and ask, like, what uh, expert witness work tends to pay? Is there a way to kind of quantify that? Sure. So, actually, everything that goes to trial, I think that comes up at trial. I know we have to put it in our expert reports. A lot of expert reports are. Uh, are public, not all, but it ranges. The hourly rate is anywhere from, I'd say $200 an hour to a thousand dollars an hour. Okay. That's a, that's a healthy range. So I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so the, oh. I would just say 200 hours for people just getting into it who don't have a lot of experience, but they're smart people. Uh, you get more typical, or typically you'll get, uh, you know, three or 400 an hour and the rain, the people who are up at a thousand dollars an hour, are people who have special expertise in some technology at issue that, uh, you know, maybe there's only a few of them in the world or a few of them in the country who, who can, well, the other thing is there might only, there might be dozens of people who do it, but only a few who actually have experience testifying. Interesting. So Bob, can we roll back to getting into consulting 
And uh, I'm interested to hear more about how that worked for you and how you advise others to, to do it now. Sure. And, and so I got into consulting with 35 years ago or 30 years ago. Yeah, I guess about 30 years ago. And, you know, I'm interested in hearing your perspectives. If I say anything that, that has changed or you feel has, you know, worked differently for you guys. Uh, you know, the main thing for me is, well, when I get into it, <clears throat> I really saw it as a temporary thing. Well, let me back up. I was working at a startup that was on its way down and uh, somebody hired a consultant to work with me. And I found out that he was getting paid twice what I was getting paid. And yet I was constantly fixing his work. And so I thought, well, I could do this and I could double my salary. So uh, I just started sending out, this is pre-internet. I started sending out lots and lots of resumes. But also one thing I did was I talked to friends. I found that sometimes people come to me and they say, I'm trying to get into consulting. And I'll say, well, did you talk to your friends? Take them out for lunch or for coffee. And they say, well, I'm embarrassed. It sounds like I'm, you know, begging for a job or I don't want to put them in a strange position. And I tell them that if you present it right, it's a win-win. If they're on a project that needs somebody short term to come in and you're willing to work, everybody wins. So my first job, I just sent out a lot of resumes and I got one interview they called me in, interviewed me, and they said, we'd like you for a permanent position. And I said, you know, I really don't want a permanent position. And they said, well, it has to be permanent. And I said, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. And then two weeks later, they called me up and they gave me a job as a consultant uh, because I had impressed them on the interview. And once somebody spends time with you, they, they, they're more likely to hire you. I've had sometimes uh, people would say, oh, we only want a permanent position. And I'd say, well, I'll consider one. And that was the truth. I would consider a permanent position. And that gets me in the door. But, you know, when they made me an offer, it was a great, it was a good offer, but not enough to make me change my mind. So when at that point, they knew that they liked me and they'd spent time on me. So it was easier for them to hire me as a consultant. Uh, the second job I get, got was from a friend, uh, who put me in touch with the vice president of a startup company. And the first time I talked to them, it wasn't the right time and they didn't make me an offer, but I kept in touch. I'm always very nice. I never, bur I never try to burn any bridges. And so a year later they called me up and they said, Hey, are you still consulting? We've got this project we need a consultant for. So I worked on that. Uh, so the two things, again, you know, what I'm saying is send out lots of, you know, answer a lot of ads, send out resumes, talk to everybody, you know, these days, rather than resumes, you know, maybe use LinkedIn or, um, and then to friends and say, Hey, look, um, you know, one thing that's really important is, I don't know if you've read the how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie. I, I, I have not read it actually. I've heard, I've heard great things about it. Yeah. So, when I was working in industry, uh, I, uh, I was having a hard time because I was used to school where you had the right answer or, the, or you didn't. And if you showed the professor the right answer, you got a good grade. So when I got into an industry, I didn't understand. I'd go into meetings and I'd say, here's the right answer. I did the research and we wouldn't choose it. We'd choose somebody else's answer because they had more seniority, for example, or they were louder than me. And I'd get upset. 
And I'd say things not terribly insulting, but you know, I'd say, look, that's a stupid idea. I didn't call the person stupid. I'd say, look, that your idea is really stupid because I can show that it's wrong. And for some reason, I wasn't making any progress. Uh, people didn't take my ideas and they didn't, you know, they didn't invite me to meetings anymore. So uh, a friend of mine who was, who had a successful company said, Oh, you should read Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people. And so I did. And it basically tells you very common sense stuff about how to get your ideas across without insulting people, basically, and how to get people to buy into your ideas. Um, just very basically how to do a win-win situation. So I started learning from that. And the point was that when I go into a negotiation for a contract, it's always got to be a win-win. I've got to, if I want something from them, I've got to give them something in return. And my strategy is, for example, if I want to, you know, earn X number of dollars per hour and they don't want to pay that, I've got to give them something in return. (laughs) And ideally I give them something that they value that I don't value. Um, you know, an example of that is that, uh, you know, if I'm negotiating a contract with somebody that, uh, I want a hundred dollars an hour and they're only willing to pay 80, for example, I'll say, look, I'll guarantee that, uh, anything that doesn't work, I will redo for free. And then they'll come around and say, wow, look, I'm getting something for free. Okay. We'll pay you extra. I get something for free. The fact is my philosophy is I would do that anyway. If I created something that didn't work and it was my fault, I would fix it at no charge. But here they're seeing that they're getting something in return for giving me what I want. And they basically get a verbal guarantee that I'm going to do this. Whereas, you know, that's my philosophy anyway. So that I don't know if that answered your question, but the point is, you know, to get these contracts, uh, I, I try to make it a win-win for everybody. I'm curious, Bob, we talk a lot on the show about how, well, especially Philip, like he's the, the, the maestro at this, but about how it really helps. I mean, you mentioned that you got some of your first jobs by talking to a lot of people and sending out resumes. And um, we talk a lot about how if you specialize and if you really are sort of known as the person, or, you know, the go-to guy for such and such, um, then maybe you'll have a smaller pool of potential clients, but those who find you um, and who are a good fit will glom onto and really, really want to work with you. Um, did you do any of that when you started off? Um, and, have you, and or have you found that you've done more of that over the years and has it helped you? So I would say that I did that when I started off, uh, but I expanded it. And I guess what I would say is my philosophy is that I've been a specialist in many different areas. And by that, what I mean is I started off as a specialist in designing small custom chips, uh, ASICs, application-specific integrated circuits, because that's what I'd done in, in, when I was working for companies. But every time I got an opportunity to do something different, I'd always, first of all, I, this is another thing from Dale Carnegie's book, always start out with something positive. So if somebody came to me and said, can you write firmware? I wouldn't say no, but I'd like to try. I'd say, oh yeah, I can. Uh, I've done a lot on the side, but not professionally, but uh, I I know that I can do it or something to that effect. So I start off with something positive and get myself into situations where I was now working on something I didn't have a lot of experience in. 
which puts a lot of pressure on you, uh, or at least it does on me. But on the other hand, if I can finish it successfully, I'm suddenly an expert in a second area. Uh, so I've been able to do that. Some people are kind of surprised because some people consider me a software expert and other people consider me a chip design expert and other people consider me specifically a programmable logic expert. And they're all true. And I try to, when somebody contacts me about work, I try to focus on the area that they need and describe that expertise. And I don't go into the other areas of expertise. I don't know if you got, what are you, what's, what are you both? What's your experience, both of you, with that kind of? Well, I actually did not specialize for the first. Year. I mean, I mean, you could argue it was a specialization in that you know I was uh, doing web development starting in the early '90s. But um, I mean, I was sort of. I even would say to people explicitly, whatever language you use, whatever system you use, I'm here to help you, and I will find a way to help you out. Um, and uh, a few years ago, uh, I started specializing more in training. Um, and especially training in Python related things. And I found it was a sea change in the way I could describe to people what I do. And also the fact that people now seek me out because I'm the the Python training guy. Now clearly there are other Python training people out there, right? Don't let that, in case you have any illusions that I'm uh, completely naive. But, um, but I mean, just, you know, today, yesterday, I got a call from a company saying, yeah, you know, we've heard you do Python training and we'd like to hire you for that. Um, so it really has, markedly improved um both like, like both uh helping the right people to find me uh and my knowing how to describe what i do to others that progression you describe bob is what i see people do um they uh, well if you kind of imagine like two funnels connected together at the narrow end uh most people will have to narrow down to get their uh, you know, their consulting career started. They don't have to, but if they do, it becomes a lot easier. And then once they have some traction, they can often broaden their focus and, and it's fine. But I, I do find that it's, it's more difficult to market yourself effectively if, you know, if your first conversation with the prospect is, is you saying, well, you know, I can, I can do chip design and software and firmware and, you know, even a little bit of integration with, uh, you know, motor driven hardware. And they just, I, I find that it's just very difficult to be, um, effective in marketing yourself when you have a really broad focus. So I'm curious if your, um, you know, initial focus was, uh, was intentional or just kind of more accidental is not quite the right word, but I think, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think my initial focus, I wasn't really thinking of starting a consulting business long term. I just thought that I had learned how to do these application specific integrated circuits. It was a fairly new technology at the time, so there weren't a lot of people that did it. And so I thought, well, I'll just go do a few of these until I figure out what I want to do. But the nice thing was, well, one thing that was interesting is when I was an employee at companies, I was employed at a big semiconductor company where I wanted to move on to other kinds of technologies and they wouldn't let me because I was too good at what I did. Mm. And people told me, if you're going to be a consultant, you have to focus on what you're good at. So I thought, okay, I'm good at these ASIC designs. I'll focus on that. But ironically, once I started getting ASIC jobs at companies, 
these companies would come to me and say, hey, we want you to look at this other thing, you know, whether it's firmware or system design, board level design. I was, I was uh, surprised, pleasantly surprised, very pleasantly surprised. And the, the idea was, I'd say, well, you know, I've never done this before. And he'd actually say to me, but you're a really smart consultant. So we want your opinion. And that taught me the lesson I was mentioning earlier about the business parts. Once I labeled myself a consultant, and had something to support it in the work that I did, people started thinking me of me differently as somebody who had a lot of answers and was a smart guy. Uh, as opposed to when I was employee, I got pigeonholed into doing one thing. So the point was that as a consultant, I could branch out because people were willing to take a risk and I was willing to take a risk. I would argue that the, the risk they took the first time hiring you was much greater than the risk they took the second time asking you to do something that wasn't firmly within your expertise. Meaning I, I think yeah. once they, once you demonstrated your ability to do a good job, um, their perception of risk probably went way down, which is why they were willing to, you know, to take what seems like a risk, but really it was just, this guy's a star performer. Let's see what he does. If we, you know, put him on this other problem. Right. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And one thing that frustrates me when I hire subcontractors for the litigation work that I do now is that sometimes I'll work with somebody and I'll be impressed with their skills and I'll say, hey, we've got a litigation involving some different technology than you're used to, but I'd like you to work on it. And occasionally people say to me, oh, that's not my area. And you know, it gets frustrating. I try to explain to them that I have confidence in them. I'm trying to get them to, I'm giving them an opportunity to work, to broaden their experience. Uh, and I'm willing to take the risk, but they're not willing to take the risk. Uh, I don't understand that attitude, actually. It, it's somewhat frustrating to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I think sometimes people pigeonhole themselves. Um, you know, because they're afraid to jump into a new area, but I think they have the skills and I'm willing to help them. Uh, and, and also, by the way, I, if anybody ever does work for me and makes a sincere effort to get it done and can't get it done, I don't have any bad feelings about it. Uh, so I, I don't see that as a negative. Uh, I'm curious then, like, so... How, so how do you get, I mean, I guess not the litigation because you described that a little bit. And it seems like you have a lot of repeat customers, but what sort of marketing do you do to bring new people in, new pe people whom, with whom you haven't worked before? Are you talking about as subcontractors? No, no, no. no. I mean, I mean, clients, I'm oh, sorry. Clients, okay. right? like how, how, do, how, do you, how do you either reach out to new clients or how do they know about you to reach out to you? And what have you found to be effective uh, and less so? So when I was doing design consulting, you know, actually designing hardware and software, I spoke at conferences, I wrote articles, tried to get my name out there. I, I never saw any direct results from that, but I think there were indirect results. So I'm not sure that people would come up to me after speaking at a conference and they'd hand me their card and they'd want to use me, but I rarely got a call from them. But I know that people did call me in for jobs and they'd heard of me 
and they saw that I spoke at the conference. And so they were more likely to hire me because they saw that I was speaking and writing about the topics they needed help with. Uh, and a lot of just word of mouth, people would say, oh, so-and-so said you could, did a good job at this company. And uh, so, you know, we need the same kind of work. With the IP litigation, it's it's harder to know. I, I do emails to attorneys. And, well, the fact is the IP work, as I mentioned, pays pretty well. So if I do, I might have gotten one or two jobs for every thousand emails I sent out, um, which sounds like a pretty bad percentage. But that one job was worth all the time spent sending out those emails. But no, no, no. Sp spamming is very profitable. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I, I I believe I don't uh, that I meet the uh, rules for not spamming. Uh, I I hope you realize I was kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I worry about that. I really do, especially in my business. You know, if I'm if I'm testifying in trial, anything I do that's public that that I do wrong could be used against me. So I try to be really sensitive. I would be sensitive anyway, but it would be public if I did anything wrong. So I try not to. <laughs> oh, I'm just, just curious, like you really send out, like, so do you do cold emailing of clients and you find that that works? So, you know, right now my consulting company has grown. It, for years, it was just me and I, I didn't want to uh, expand because it was a lot of overhead and paperwork and uh, well, but now, it has expanded and I actually have an assistant and, uh, but I individually send every single email to an attorney. I look over the name, I look at where they're working, but I have an assistant who helps me put together uh, names of people. And uh, I'd say in probably seven years of doing this, I think I've only had two complaints from people who said, don't email me. Um, so yeah, so but I actually individually send out each email, you know, like at the end of the week, I'll sit there and send out each email individually. Wow. That's amazing. So, yes, I mean, yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I guess I'm surprised simply because I mean, I've tried it a little bit and I was miserable at it. And I know that there are other people who are successful at the cold emailing. So maybe we get it a little bit like, you know, what, how you figure out who to send messages to and how how you manage to hook them because uh really I, I got stony silence from almost everyone um so, yeah i can say with the ip litigation things are different first of all you have to hit the people at the right time which is pretty rare but uh, like i said in probably seven i think i've sent out like seven thousand emails in seven years something like that and uh maybe got two or three jobs from them, but the IP litigation jobs are generally so, you know, they're, they're so valuable that it's worth the effort. Even if you only get one, if you get a couple every seven years, actually it's probably more than that. It's gotta be more than that, but nobody's ever been upset with it. Part of the problem is that with IP litigation, it seems like there's more and more people doing expert witness work and doing consulting on these things, but there's not a lot of very high quality people. What I mean is there's only, I know a lot of the people who are good at what they do and who do this on a regular basis, 
And so it's really hard to find people. And so I think the lawyers are happy to, to get an email saying, we're available. Let me know if you need any more information about us. But it, but the results are not direct. They, they don't come directly. They don't come immediately. In other words, it could be a year before I hear from someone. Do you, do you ever email the same firms more than once? Yeah, I was going to ask that same question. <laughs> and do you, and do you follow up? So I, I rarely follow up. Sometimes I think I should, but uh, I don't have that much time. It, it's enough time sending these things out. Um, I've, I've emailed the same law firms, but different people at the law firms. And sometimes they shift around. The only thing that was a little bit embarrassing, it, it didn't hurt me, but uh, it turns out that somebody got on my list. A team of lawyers got on my list at the same time that they had just hired us for a case. And I kept sending them emails, different people on the team. And they kept writing back and saying, Bob, you're already working for us. <laughs> and I kept apologizing. But when you're going through a list of emails, you know, sometimes I just click, click send before I realize, oh, wait a minute. I know that person. <laughs> That's when you throw your email uh, automation software under the bus, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, one thing, I because I don't actually design hardware and software anymore, I don't get it. I get very few inquiries for that. And I'm always wondering how people, because things have changed. And, you know, when I was active designing hardware and software, uh, I sent out letters, <laughs> believe it or not, and later on emails. Uh, but now I don't even know how to go about doing that, honestly. I guess, uh, how do people go about getting jobs, uh, designing hardware and software and setting up systems? You know, uh, I, I don't know specifically because I, I have uh, only worked with one person directly who uh, what he does is embedded systems um, design, both hardware and software. And uh, the vast majority of his work comes through referrals. I, I probably 100%. So... I, th I would think that's that's how most people are going to get started in. Um, I mean, that strikes me as a sort of capital intensive branch of consulting, whereas software, you know, you can hire somebody for a hundred dollars to <laughs> write you a piece of software if if the scope is small enough. Where it it seems to me like the kind of work you're doing seems more it's basically more expensive, more capital intensive. Mm -hmm. Is that right? When you do you mean the IP litigation stuff? Well, I'm thinking back to the the you know the the hardware work that you did. Yeah, the hardware work I did. Uh, actually, the tools were so expensive that I was never expected to have my own tools. Right. I I always used the company's tools. Um, so actually, it was very there wasn't very much capital involved because the company expected me to come into their office and use the tools they had there. I guess what I was saying is you were only going to be hired to do that for a, a large company, right? Or a startup that had some, you know, some significant investment behind it. Right. That's true. Okay. That, that's true. Yeah. I just, I think it's, it's a sort of different market that might be, um, 
I think the same forms of marketing would essentially work today as they did for you to, to answer your earlier question about how somebody gets their first, their first job or first project in that world. I think it's going to look very similar, you know, relationships, um, writing and speaking. Yeah. What I found is, uh, and I don't know if you found this, but I initially uh, tried putting article, uh, advertisements in magazines. Uh, some of them were small in the back of magazines. Some of them, I eventually put out a significant amount of cash for like a half page ad or a full page ad. And I never got any response from those. I hate to say, but I would get a response from an article, which was free. And sometimes I even got paid for articles. Uh, so I started writing articles. It takes a lot more work, but people would call me from an article, having seen an article and saying, Oh, we're dealing with the same issue. We'd like to call you in and have you work for us. Uh, but doing advertisements, I never got an, any response. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from The Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremotecom.com. call you in and have you work for us. Uh, but doing advertisements, I never got an, any response. It takes, it takes a lot more expertise to write the article, <laughs> which I think is why people respond uh, differently. You know, anybody who's got the, the budget can place an ad. You know, another thing I found, and I, so another thing I found, and I'd be curious to get your feedback on this is I joined uh, consulting groups and they never did anything for me. To be perfectly honest, I'd go to the groups and it was fun to network and talk to people, but I, I don't, uh, I hope this isn't taken wrong, but I've found over the years that uh, if people had the time to go to consulting groups, their, their consulting business wasn't doing that well. <laughs> uh, I think that's uh, not a terror, not, not a bad analysis. <laughs> So yeah, so those consulting groups, I never had anybody help me find work, or it was pretty rare. Um, because we were all talking, I, I, like, trying to get work from each other. That's the thing. Like I, I, I went to uh, a handful of such meetings many years ago, and that was the impression I came out with: that basically all the people were desperate to get work, and so they were all like hoping that someone else there needed work from them. And I, it was sort of this weird thing of are we supposed to be helping each other's businesses? Like, yes, we're supposed to help each other's businesses, but it's supposed to be a little more like strategic and not transactional. Right. Right. Yeah. Same. Um, although I would, I, I think that those sorts of, uh, at least in the freelance world, those sorts of meetups are places where agencies will go and kind of find, find people to plug into a project. Oh. But, uh, I never, um, Never found that to be as effective as other forms of marketing. And I know I, I still, I don't have much time these days, but I'll go off the 
speaker is somebody interesting or speaking about it, if there is a speaker or he or she's speaking about an interesting topic, or sometimes just to network, I meet interesting people. Uh, if I'm hiring, cons- once in a while I am hiring consultants, like, like Phil, I think you were saying, I'm not an agency, but I might need to hire someone to help me with a project. I will sometimes go to those things and try to find somebody. Um, but they never helped. Well, but they never help me get a job. It's usually I, I sometimes meet people that I can hire. So somebody's getting it. If I'm hiring somebody at these things, somebody's getting a job out of it. So I guess it's not a complete waste. Yeah, it, it really depends on what you expect when you when you go to a networking meetup like that. Yeah. Last week uh, on, on the freelancer show here, Curtis and I were talking about networking in person, but the whole idea behind what Curtis was saying is that you have to go to places where your clients are going to be, not your peers. Right. It's fine to I mean, hang out with your peers, but that's what you're doing. You're hanging out with your peers. You're not going to some high value activity that's going to put you in touch with potential clients. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I know that one thing I do, sometimes I question whether this is effective. I think it is, but it's also time consuming, is I like meeting with people over coffee. And I often meet several people a week over coffee. Sometimes it's people who want to meet with me and talk to me about projects or just in general, they want to get some advice from me. And sometimes it's potential clients. And rather than go to them and say, uh, I'd like to be working for you. If I have some connection, I say, oh, I'd like to meet for coffee, my treat, just talk to you about some things. And in fact, one thing I found that, that I really like to do, I think this is effective, but it's like I said, it's time consuming and it's not always directly effective. You can't always directly measure it. But uh, I think it was Ben Franklin who said, if you want to make a friend, borrow something from them or ask them for advice, something to that effect. And I think people get this backwards. Uh, some, I know that people sometimes will go out with a potential client and try to sell themselves. Um, and I don't think that works. I mean, I think you want to sell yourself, but you don't want to do it so blatantly. A lot of times I will go to a potential client and ask them for advice. And I sincerely need the advice. But I realized that this has two effects. One, I'm getting advice from somebody that is knowledgeable. And uh, second, it builds a relationship because they, when you ask someone for advice, you're flattering them because they realize that you respect their opinion and it makes them feel good about the relationship. Whereas if you're trying to sell somebody, people have, I think, well, I have a natural aversion to salespeople. And as soon as I feel like I'm being sold, I get turned off. Um, so my example is I'll, I might go to a lawyer. A few years ago, I did this. I called up a lot of lawyers I'd worked with and I said, hey, I'd just like to take you out for a drink or coffee or lunch and pick your brain about where I can find more clients, uh, what I should be doing. And inevitably, one will call me up within a month and say, hey, I, you know, I've got a job for you. And it just it puts you in there, you know, puts you at the top of their list and it flatters them and, and you, get, you can get good advice out of it. Bob, did you ever uh, make a practice of asking for referrals from previous clients? I'm curious if that was part of your business development plan. I did. I always did. Um, so I think I always did. I, I, I don't know if it was formally done. Sometimes I get a letter 
you know, ask for a letter. Sometimes I'd ask some, a former client to call up a potential client or, or ask if I could use them as a reference. I've done that a lot. The litigation business consulting, another reason it's hard to get into is there's a lot of confidentiality. And I found for years, a lot of lawyers didn't want to even acknowledge that they had used my services. Uh, and they didn't want me to talk about certain cases. Um, but it's, even though it's a public record that you were an expert witness for someone, yeah? Well, it's only public if I actually uh, submit a report to the court. Anytime before then, it's not public. And I'll give you the most frustrating example was I worked on the Facebook case against the Winklevoss twins that was made into the movie. Uh, the oh, social cool. Yeah, that was the first major case I worked on. And the case, uh, it settled, so I was never officially disclosed as the expert. And uh, this was also the first case that I used the tools I developed that compare software to find copyright infringement. So I wanted to use this to promote my business. And the lawyer, who's a good friend, he's one of the best, he's considered now, he was, his career was on the rise at the time, but now he's considered one of the top, if not the top, uh, IP attorneys in the country. And he told me, he said, Bob, uh, this is going to go to appeal. And then after appeal, there was, I think, another appeal. And then the Winklevoss twins uh, actually sued their own attorneys. <laughs> and that went to court. Um, this was like for five years. I was told not to talk about it because if I talked about it, I might inadvertently give away some information uh, that could be used in court. So the biggest case, the most famous case, even when the movie came out, I took people to see the movie and I quietly told people that I was the guy that when Mark Zuckerberg holds up a paper at a deposition to papers and says, I didn't steal your code. I tell people that's my report. <laughs> but I, could, I couldn't make it public. And this was, people would come up to me and ask me about the case and I'd have to shrug my shoulders and not say anything. So it was, about, it was about five years I couldn't talk about it. Um, now, technically I could, but this uh, prominent attorney who's a friend of mine wouldn't have been happy about it and I would have burned an important bridge. But the point is, <laughs> a lot of this is confidential, so it's very hard to promote the business based on what you've done. Over the years, I've gotten attorneys like him, actually, he's, he's listed on my website, one of my websites now as a reference, um, some attorneys don't want to be a reference. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want me to talk about it. So it makes things especially difficult. Yeah. I can see how that would be problematic for getting referrals. Yeah. Oh, the, the most frustrating example. Uh, well, another frustrating example is this lawyer. Uh, his name is Neil Chatterjee. Uh, he's on my website. Everybody knows he worked on the Facebook case. I mean, every, you know, most legal IP, most IP attorneys know that. Uh, a brilliant guy. Uh, one time he invited me to his firm to have lunch. And I sat down and another guy sat down at the table and he introduced me as another partner at the firm. And Neil said to the other partner, he said, oh, this is Bob. He helped us on the Facebook case. I, the software copyright, he's really great at that. And the other attorney, who's, again, a partner at the firm, said, wow, I wish we knew about you a month ago because we had a case we could have used you on. And what's frustrating about that is one partner knew about me and had never mentioned me to the other partner at the firm. So that happens a lot. 
Wow. Huh. If you could go back and, uh, I don't know, could you like do an internal presentation to the partners at that firm? Was there something may, that you could have done differently that might have uh, distributed knowledge about you throughout the firm? It's interesting you say that because I think after that incident, I actually did do a presentation. Uh, but what happens is that the lawsuits are so intense. They are really intense. I tell some engineers, this is an issue. Some engineers who are brilliant engineers are just not good at this kind of work. And part of it is when the judge says you need to get, you need to get a paper in or some report in by five o'clock Eastern time on this day, you can't get it in five minutes late. You can't say they're not kidding. Right. And sometimes the judge will say, we need a report tomorrow. It's very frustrating, but they'll say, we need, you know, we need a preliminary report tomorrow. And you can't say, Hey, tomorrow I'm taking my kid to, you know, the school and, or, or to the, you know, Disneyland or whatever it is, you either get it in or, or you screw up the whole case for everybody. Um, so the thing is when the lawsuit's going on, the lawyers, I've learned that they do not want to talk about anything but the immediate lawsuit. They're usually working around the clock, uh, and this can go on for months. So, uh, so it's hard for me to say, Hey, can I do a presentation for the other partners? They will say, we'll talk about that when it's over. And then when it's over, they're so burned out that they usually don't even return my calls. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's a tricky uh, <clears throat> client dynamic to deal with. Yeah. And I know that one thing that, that I insist on with my people, it's sometimes hard. You know, people have to understand that this kind of schedule and these kind of demands and everybody working for me has to be open to, you know, incredibly tight deadlines that we have no control over. Like, be perfectly honest, the lawyers are generally not very good at scheduling stuff for the experts. So a lot of times it's their mistake because they're working so hard. They forgot to tell us they need a report in two days um, or that the deadline was moved up by three weeks. Uh, that's very frustrating, but I've learned they pay us well and I like the work. So I have to live with it. Um, but also sometimes the judges come in, like I said, uh, some parties will go to court and they'll argue about a point. And the judge will say, well, I don't know, get your experts, to give me a report in three days and then I'll decide. Um, so we, you know, if you're going to work in this area, you just have to accept those deadlines and do the best you can. And if you, if you ask the attorneys to prioritize, this is always frustrating. I've learned this over the years and, and people working for me, I protect them from this stuff because I figure that's my job, but uh, at least as much as I can, if, if the attorneys say we need, we need three different analyses. Uh, and I'll say, we only have time for two, which two do we choose? And they'll say all three. That's the answer you always get. <laughs> so, so basically what I've learned over the years is I tell the people working for me, and, you know, by the way, I do a lot of the work myself, but less and less these days, I do more coordination, but I still do a lot of the work. Um, you know, all of us, I'll say to everybody, I say, look, they need all three. Uh, so we're going to do these two. And for the third one, we're going to write up the best argument we can without all the evidence we can get. In other words, we, we can't get the evidence on it, but 
we're going to write up the best argument we can, which doesn't mean making stuff up. That's got to be clear. It means that, uh, you know, let me give you an example. If you say uh, this computer has a hard drive and uh, it's a solid state hard drive and you haven't had time to take apart the computer and check that it's solid state, the argument was, to the best of my belief, it has a it has a solid state hard drive because most computer shipping these days, or most computer shipping after 2015, has have a hot solid state hard drive. This is from a major manufacturer, um, you know. Therefore, it's my belief that this has a solid state hard drive. I'm making something up that's an oversimplification, but the point is, if we don't have time to take something apart, we will make arguments and make it clear in our arguments that this is based on our best belief, based on everything we know. Well, now you've got me curious about <laughs> intellectual property lawsuits. Um, how, how long do these cases take to resolve? Like what, what's the range you've seen? Usually things go to trial within a year. Uh, we're actually working on some cases in Australia and South Africa. Outside the U.S., these cases, those cases have been going on for three or four years and are not yet resolved. Mm. So we don't. We often don't understand how privileged we are in the U.S. If you take something to court, a year seems like a long time. But then, you know, parties can appeal and that could be another year. And then they can appeal again. That could be another year. So three years is typically the limit. Uh, But outside the U.S., a case can drag on for many years. They just don't have the kind of uh, emphasis. You know, most other countries like to avoid litigation and so they don't put as much resources into it and the courts just seem to move much more slowly. Hmm. So, so Bob, Bob, I'm going to channel uh, our other uh, co-panelist here, Jonathan Stark, who's not here today, obviously. And I say, you mentioned earlier charging by the hour, right? Doesn't this um, sort of put you, doesn't then make it um, sort of in your interest um, to just like work on cases and have them take forever? Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I, I tell the people who work for me, so the, the people who work for me get paid really well. I just, and so, but what I tell them is in return for getting paid well, and I think I take care of them well, we, we really try to be efficient. And if that means we can make a tool to improve our efficiency, we'll do it. And everybody's okay with that. But you're right. I think there are some people. Well, let me give you an example. I, I created these tools to speed up my work and now I license them and I make money off the tools. But when I first started them, I, I thought that I would license them to other consultants doing this kind of work and nobody wanted them. And I realized that everybody was thinking, I think in terms of, or a lot of people were thinking in terms of hours. If I use this tool and cut down my hours, then uh, I'm not going to make as much money. And I think a lot of people think that way, but I think the reason my business is doing so well is because we really try to work efficiently and bring in more work as opposed to extend the work on one, on one job. In other words, rather than putting in more hours on one job, we try to put in fewer, but we try to get more jobs. And I think it helps us in the long run because we get more jobs because our clients say, wow, these people are really efficient because they're using these tools so we're more likely to use them. So I think trying to be more efficient helps in the long term. But if you have a short term view, then you try to put in more hours. 
But do these companies that are involved in these lawsuits, like, do they even care about the budget? Because it's worth, you know, so many millions. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just my stereotype for watching too much TV law, right? But it seems to me if you've got, you know, Facebook versus, uh, we've got these huge companies with, uh, you know, billions at stake, potentially, they'll spend whatever it is, and they'll just see it as an expense. So that's okay. You know, you'd think so. But ironically, it's not the case. I'll give you two examples. One will remain anonymous because, I mean, if you did some research, you might be able to find out. But um, one of them was years ago. I was doing one of my first patent cases for Intel. And uh, this was a little bit different. I have a lot of examples, but this is a little bit different. But I was uh, I was doing I was reverse engineering a bunch of code. Intel was suing VIA. VIA had copied Intel's processor. And I was the expert in cases. The cases were actually in the US, England, Germany, Hong Kong. It was all over the place. And I was the expert on the case. And I, it was pretty fun because I'd have a piece, I'd have these old PCs. I collect old PCs anyway. But I'd get these PCs and maybe not that old. I guess they weren't that old, but I would, I would. Uh, write assembly language code to test different functions within the chip, within the processor, and determine if it infringed in VIA's processor and determine if it infringed on Intel's patent. And at one point, in a conversation with the attorneys, by the way, let me let me tell you, there were times when the, when the, the U.S. attorneys would have to talk with the U.K. attorneys in England, and I'd get up early in the morning in my underwear and I'd be on the phone for hours just listening, and they'd pay me per hour. I even said to them, do you need me on the phone? Because I'm not really contributing much. And they'd say, yeah, every once in a while, we need to ask you a question. So I'd be sitting there in my underwear, my wife would bring me breakfast, I'd be on the phone, and, and mostly not doing anything, but once in a while, they'd say, Bob, what do you think of this? And I'd say, yeah, that's good or bad. And, uh, but one time I was on the phone, so they, they were willing to do that, but another time, the attorney said, we need you to write some assembly code for to test this and that. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, I, I'm going to go buy an assembler because I need a better assembler program. And they said, how much does that cost? And I said, well, it's about $400. They said, we're going to have to run that by Intel management to see if they'll pay for it. <laughs> and I said, I told them, you know, the time it takes for me to talk to Intel management about it, I'm going to pay more than four. They're going to pay more than $400. But that was their policy. Um, I've got another client, uh, I've had clients who put ridiculous constraints on budget. Like sometimes we have small clients and we know their budget is constrained. And my philosophy is if you tell us ahead of time, don't tell us afterwards. Don't tell us after we put in the time that you can't afford it. That really gets me upset. But if you tell me upfront that you've got a limited budget, I work within that budget and we do whatever we can and I don't have a problem with it. Uh, as long as we, and if we can't do the work on that budget, we can't do anything for you. We'll tell you, look, we, we just can't do it within that budget. But I've had a client recently, uh, who has an incredible amount of money. And by incredible, I mean with a capital I and they hired us to do some work. And when they got our invoices, they said they weren't going to pay for part of it. And it came down to a technicality about what they willing to pay for and what they weren't willing to pay for. They told us that we did a great job. They loved the work they did, but they just weren't going to pay the full invoice. And I've had this happen before, by the way. 
<laughs> and those two lawyers, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> look, I've, I've unfortunately I have to say I've gone to court over this several times. Usually, when you file the papers for court, they pay you. But this is a case that probably was worth. There's probably a hundred million dollars at stake in this case, and we're talking about a few thousand dollars they didn't want to pay. And I terminated the contract over a few thousand dollars, even though they said we were doing terrific work. Um, because I know that when the client starts starts worrying about a few thousand dollars on a case that's this big, that it's just going to be too difficult to work with them. And it's going to be an unpleasant situation. So my philosophy is I don't, you know, they need us. We've got lots of clients. If they're going to argue about these little things, then I just don't want to do it. And it's not like I just said, no, I came to them and said, Hey, I think there's a mistake. How can we work this out? What can we do? Um, you know, and they just said, look, that's just our policy. We won't pay for this part of it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, it's strange. Wow. I, I, can, wow, indeed. I can tell you the opposite. That one of the, the first patent case I worked on was at, for Texas Instruments. And Texas Instruments makes a lot of money off patent cases. And I can tell you, because this is public, I worked on t the first two patent cases I ever worked on were for TI. They assembled a team of people from around the world. If, if we said we know a guy, well, we knew a guy in Israel. Uh, we, they said, bring him in. We knew a guy in Alaska. They said, bring him in. <laughs> Um, they brought us in, we worked. If I said to them, we need, and this happened one time, I said, well, we, what we're going to need for this is some equipment. And what I, I found this $40,000, uh, logic analyzer, that's really going to help us, but I can keep looking. And they said, the lawyer said, why are you wasting our time asking about this? Just put it on your credit card and have it shipped and, and then expense it to us. Um, that doesn't always happen, but. But TI settled the two cases I worked on for TI, one against Samsung and one's against Hyundai. They ended up set, settling each case for over a billion dollars. So they were smart. Why spend the time worrying about a $40,000 piece of equipment when there's a billion dollars at stake? Yeah, seriously. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to wrap up. Uh... Do you have any last um, suggestions or advice we move on before we move into picks? Um, can't think of any. I think we went over everything. Uh, you know, I'd say, uh, you know, for people who are trying to get into consulting, if you really want to do it, be persistent, uh, you know, have faith in yourself. And when you do get your first job, do the best job you can, because that's the best way of getting a second job. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. Here, here. Excellent. 
Um, Philip, you have any picks for us this week? I do. <clears throat> I have had an ongoing battle with a piece of hardware, <laughs> to, uh, which is this external uh, dual bay drive thing that I got for cheap on Amazon. And it was supposed to be a nice way for me to make a backup of my computer because I would save stuff to that external drive. And then it had a button on there on the, on the drive chassis. It's one of these things where you just stick a naked drive in it, right? Or two of them rather. And it was supposed to clone one to the other. It never worked. So I found something better, <laughs> which is from OWC. It's their external uh, Thunderbolt dual drive bay. And I don't know, I've got kind of a mixed track record. OWC's hardware has not always been the most reliable, even though it's a great uh, value in terms of the price. So, uh, but this one seems to be working well. So that's my pick, the OWC <laughs> dual drive uh, Thunderbolt external dock. Uh, it's worked really well now for a couple months and uh, I think I can recommend it. It's nice because I can um, stick two drives in there and do whatever I want. You know, uh, I just run an rsync script every night that copies from one to the other. And uh, that way I've got some redundancy for that data. That's it. That's my pick for this week. Not only is that an interesting pick, Philip, but I think in mentioning, oh, yeah, I've just got this rsync script that runs in the background. You have seriously increased your uh, tech cred and uh, re removed any uh, deniability that, uh, you know, oh, I'm not a software guy. That's right. Um, hey, I can make a thing or two <laughs> happen in the in the terminal. <laughs> uh, Bob, do you have any picks, uh, things to suggest to our listeners? Yeah, here's something that I've been showing to everybody. Uh, so, and I know that I'm getting old because I got this as a gift from my wife. By the way, I, I knew I was a nerd when I got a, I got System Commander for my wife for my birthday like 15 years ago, which allowed me to put multiple operating systems on the same computer. I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> but this year, she got me something from a company called Thin Optics, T H I N Optics. Uh, it's these little foldable, tiny foldable reading glasses that fit into like a little, like something about the size of a key fob for a car. And you can put it on your keychain. And now wherever I go, if I'm in a restaurant or if I'm reading circuit boards or tiny schematics, uh, I just pop out these and, and unfold these reading glasses and I can read them. <clears throat> I just turned 40. Uh, well, probably 43 this August and I'm like, ooh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I felt kind of good and bad that I was excited about getting it as a gift. I mean, I'm in your club, Bob. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so I've got to pick, uh, you, you might have heard Russia's been in the news a little bit lately. Uh, if, if not, well, this isn't the podcast for that. But um, I heard this guy interviewed a few times and decided to get his book. His name is Bill Browder. And he uh, was a big investor, uh, venture capital investor in Russia, American, who moved there for excitement and all sorts of interesting family reasons, um, and basically ended up fleeing the country uh, and then working to um, you know, push back against the Russian government for what they'd done to his lawyer. So I read the book. It was a very quick, fascinating, like, you know, one of those page turner, I would call it page turner, but it was more like a 
Kindle Turner, Kindle Tapper. In any event, um, definitely fun, interesting story. A little terrifying, a little high on himself, but you know what? Um, I'm willing to grant him that. Um, so anyway, Red, it's called Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice by Bill Browder. And I'll uh, put the information in the show notes there. Um, Bob, if people want to get in touch with you, what are good ways to read stuff you're writing and hear more from you beyond our little podcast here? Well, fortunately, they can search for my last name. There are a few other people, but I show up a lot. Or if they want to email me, the email is bob at zeidmanconsulting.com. All right. Well, that sounds pretty straightforward. Yeah, that goes without saying my website is (laughs) www.zeidmanconsulting.com. Don't forget the www. Um, Bob, thanks so much for joining us on the show. We really enjoyed it. Um, Both your advice and your fantastic stories. And uh, thanks to all of you out there for listening. And we will be back next week here on The Freelancer Show. Great. Thank you guys for having me. Great talking to you, Bob. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.